Well, good morning. It's great to see you again this week. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and make your way to John chapter 7. We're continuing through the series that you just saw, Believe and Live Through the Gospel of John. And if you are a visitor with us in the room, thank you for being here. My name is Ryan. I get the privilege of serving as one of our pastors here at the church. And what we do every week is we open up God's Word and allow it to speak to us. God's Word guides our lives and tells us what we should do. And in God's Word, uh, one of the passages tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so earlier in the service, we had time to pray and thank God. Um, and some of y'all were thanking God for the Carolina win last night. Uh, but we also weep with those who weep. So we'll have a prayer time afterwards for all you Duke fans up front and uh, pray with you as you recover from it. Um, I hope you were able to enjoy a little bit of that game last night. It was, uh, it was a fun run. It's a fun run. All right, before we read uh, John 7 this morning, I kind of set the, the context a little bit here. I grew up and I have two older siblings. And what that means is if you have two older siblings, there's a lot of healthy um, conflict that happens, right? There's a lot of competition that goes on when uh, you have older siblings. And as the youngest, I always had to prove my point time and time again. Well, one time we were at a family member's house who had a garden in the backyard. And my sisters and I are out there playing, and I'm young. I don't know how old I was, five, six, seven, something like that. And uh, we see the different vegetables growing in the garden, and we see this one. Well, we start to argue back and forth, and I am arguing that this is a carrot. This is a carrot. And my oldest sister is saying, no, 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 this is not a carrot. That's a pepper. Now, we didn't have any parents around to decide who was right. We didn't, we were just kind of playing in the backyard. But I believe with my whole heart that that was a carrot. So finally, my older sister said, if you believe that that is a carrot, then eat it. Eat it. Kind of put your money where your mouth is. And I was like, fine then. And I grabbed that thing off the vine, which is the first problem, right? And, uh, and I go to put it in my mouth. I took a huge bite out of that, looking to prove that I was right. And within an instant, I knew I was wrong. And for the next few days, it was like I had a sunburn in my mouth, inside of my mouth, because I ate that pepper, right? Now, I, I tell you that because right belief leads to right action. And wrong belief leads to wrong action. And in this passage in John chapter 7 today, we're going to see people believing different things about Jesus. We'll see four different groups of people. And what they believe about Jesus leads to right action or wrong action based on whether they are believing the truth or not. And this is important for us. This is extremely important for us to understand who Jesus is. A.W. Tozer, you'll see a picture of him on the screen, but he said it this way. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. Listen to it again. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Why is that most important thing about us? Because it shapes the way that we live. Shapes the way that we go through trials and suffering and pain and even joys of life. You see, if you think God is some legalistic judge with no grace and no mercy, then you will live your entire life on this pace of a performance where I've got to do all these things in order for God to love me because he's a legalistic judge. If that's what you believe about God, that's how you're going to live your life. On the other extreme, some think that, that God is just this uh, ethereal sky fairy 
who just floats around and sprinkles out love to everybody, right? And if we believe that, then sin doesn't matter to us. Holiness doesn't matter to us. Sanctification doesn't matter to us if that's who we think God is. What you believe about God is extremely important. And right belief will lead to right action. So do you have, do we have the right belief about God? Let's look in this passage today and let's see these four different groups and their beliefs of God. We'll start in verse one. And like I said, have your Bible here that we're going through 31 verses. You're going to get lost if you're not following along with me. So look along with me as we read these. Verse one says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And that's not a, a racial slur in this moment. That's speaking of the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders at that time. So not all of this ethnic group is seeking to kill him. Just the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now we're going to come back to verse 5, but it's a sobering verse. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast and I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus went up also. Not publicly, the way that they wanted, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much murmuring, murmuring about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, 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 no. He's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews, therefore, they marveled, saying, how does this man have learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon or you're crazy. Who, who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work. And you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that Moses did, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If only on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? 
But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true in him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he has sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This is an important verse, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Pray with me. Lord, we understand that right belief leads to right action. And so help us today to believe rightly about you. Give us understanding to your divinity, your power, your majesty. Give us the right understanding that you are the deliverer, the one who saves us from our sins and is the Lord of our life. With this right view in mind, God, would you give us peace? For you are Lord in the most anxious of times in our lives. May this right belief encourage us today by reminding us of your grace, your grace that we see in your saving work on the cross. Help us to rightfully believe today so that we can rightfully live for you. Now let me invite you in a moment of silence to pray that God would speak to you and that you would see Jesus for who he is through this passage today. Pray and ask him now. And pray for me that in these next few moments that I would serve you well as I open up God's word to you. Pray for me. Lord, these words that we just read were written so that we may believe that you are the Christ and that in believing we would have a life in your name. So thank you for that. And we pray and ask you would help us today to believe and live. It's in Christ's name we ask, amen. All right, four different beliefs about Christ that we find in this passage, four different views of Jesus. First, we find that some people believe Jesus is useful, but not Lord. Jesus is useful, but not Lord. And what's fascinating is that the first group of people that we see that fall into this belief system of who Jesus is and what we're supposed to do with Jesus, we would never guess that these people would fall into disbelief and to look to him as just useful instead of Lord. And let me tell you why we would think that this group wouldn't fall into this category. First of all, it's because this is the family of Jesus that falls in this category. Verse three says his brothers are there. His brothers are having this conversation with Jesus. Now this isn't um, brothers and sisters in Christ like we kind of talk about within the church. This is his literal brothers and sisters, right? So what that means is Jesus is virgin born, right? And Joseph is the adopted father of Jesus. But after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary come together and they have multiple kids, they have several kids, brothers and sisters that Jesus has. And so Jesus has a lot of half brothers and half sisters. 
and an adopted father. This is Jesus' family life. And here these brothers grew up with Jesus, which you know has got to be difficult growing up having Jesus as your older brother, right? Like coming in and seeing a room destroyed. Well, (laughs) I know Jesus didn't do this. And I don't know if Mary and Joseph tried to put what would Jesus do bracelets on the other kids to just have them think about what would your older brother do? Like do those things, right? But they saw his whole life. They knew who he was. So this is, this is family members, and yet they're not believers. And not only do they know Jesus' life and know who he is, they even know his power and his might. They look at Jesus and they're like, hey Jesus, we've seen you do a lot of miracles and a lot of amazing things. Why don't you go ahead and do that in Judea? Why don't you just go ahead and go into the city and while you're there, do all these miracles so everybody can see? They know the power and the might of Jesus. They know the life of Jesus. And so they look at him and say, hey, go on up there. Put on a show. Let everybody see you in all of your glory. And Jesus doesn't do it because he says, my time is not at hand. Now we see him go up to the city, but not in the way his brothers wanted him to. They wanted him to go up openly and publicly. And Jesus goes later at a delayed time and he goes privately. Now why did they want him to go publicly? Why did they want him to go up and, and, and stand in front of people and do all these miracles? Not because they wanted people to believe, but because they saw Jesus as useful. Hey, if our brother becomes famous, what does that say for us? We get to ride the coattails of the fame of Christ. They're using Jesus, not worshiping Jesus. And the way we know that is because of what verse 5 says. For not even his brothers believed in him. This is sarcasm that they're using right here. This is, this is Jesus used as a pawn in a chess game of their life, not as the Lord of their life. They don't even believe. And what breaks my heart when I think about this is this unbelief is not because Jesus failed to show himself to his family. It's not a failure to show himself that, that impeded their belief in him. Rather, it was their selfish desires to use Jesus that caused their disbelief. It's their selfishness. The selfishness of their heart is what kept them from belief in Jesus. John says, even for us, that some of the deepest roots of our desire is to use Jesus. And when we use Jesus for our own gain and our own self-promotion, we will never find saving faith. We won't. We talked about it some last week, but if we use Jesus and we look at Jesus as a security guard to defend our kingdom, then we'll never worship him in his. We won't. If we look at Jesus as a school teacher just to train up our kids to have good moral kids, then we will never worship Jesus and find him as our savior. We cannot come to Jesus with the belief that he's just a useful pinata that we whack with prayer to get all the blessings that we want in life. That's not where we find salvation. That's not where we find true belief. We find it by coming to him for who he is the son of God who stood in our place and took our sins on the cross and rose from the grave. Now, two encouraging things for us. One, if you think I fall into this category, I I have looked at Jesus as a way of just a little bit of karma in my life to bless me and what I'm doing. There's good news for you. 
and that Jesus came to seek and to save you. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And we know that it's encouragement for us personally because if you look what happens to Jesus' brothers is they eventually believe in him. They turn from looking to Jesus as useful, they turn from using him as a pawn in the chest of their life and they start looking to him as Lord and they worship him as that. We know of two of the brothers who wrote New Testament books, James and Jude. And these guys' lives were transformed. They didn't say, well, now we want to use Jesus. When Jesus died and rose from the grave, it changed them. And they started to look at Jesus rightly and it changed the way that they lived. This gives us hope that Jesus can change us as well. I love what James says as he starts this letter in James 1.1. This is how he introduces himself to the church at that time. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't come and say, hey, I'm here to use Jesus anymore. He's like, no, I have bowed my knee to the king. I'm a servant to Jesus. Whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. It's changed him. He has a right belief and it's followed by a right action. And he looks and he's like, Jesus is God. I'm a servant of him. And he is Lord. He is above all things. This is how James responds to it. He no longer uses Jesus, but loves Jesus as the Lord of his life. Another one of his brothers, Jude, says at the beginning of Jude, in verse one, he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. I love that. I love that. Jude doesn't say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and I'm the brother of Jesus. So pay attention, everybody. I'm the brother of Jesus. He doesn't even say, I'm not even worthy of being called a half-brother of Jesus. You know what I'm gonna say about Jesus? That he is my Lord and I am his servant. And I'm gonna say I'm the brother of James. I mean, God changed his heart and his life. And so that gives us hope personally that Jesus can change us. It's not that, oh, I've been using Jesus, so there's no hope for me. There's no salvation for me. No, there is hope. John put this in here because he knew that the people who would read this, you and I, and even people in the early church would know that Jesus' brothers did change, that Jesus changed their heart and, and minds. But also, this gives us hope for those who aren't believers, specifically for those in our family. I mean, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, I got an unbelieving brother, or I have an unbelieving sister, so did Jesus. Jesus gets it. Some of you are like, I've been praying for my brother or my sister for years, and they're not believing in Christ, they're not trusting in Christ. Jesus gets it. But don't grow weary in praying for them and sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Because just like Jesus' brothers were redeemed, so can your family. So do not grow weary in sharing this good news. Because Jesus saves, Jesus rescues, Jesus redeems, because this is who Jesus is. And if we have that right view of this is who Jesus is, it will change how we pray, how we share, how we live our lives. Not to use Jesus, but to be a servant and to worship Jesus. Second group of people we find in this text, they look at Jesus and they see Jesus as good, just not God. Jesus is a good person. He's just, he's just not God. And we see that in verse 12. There's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of talk about who Jesus is among the people. 
Some are saying he's a good man and others are saying, no, he's leading people astray. In verse 13, it says, and yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, I want us to unpack verse 12, but let me just say this about verse 13. May they not be said of us as followers and believers of Jesus, that we feared other people so much that we did not speak openly of Jesus. May we have a boldness to speak right beliefs and right truths about Jesus in a world that's confused. I mean, there's people that are confused in this passage. They're trying to, is he a good man? Is he God? No, no, he's leading people astray. Like, what's going on? And nobody is openly speaking these truths about Jesus except for Jesus himself in this moment. But that first group we see are people who are believing that Jesus is good, but not God, but not God. And if you fast forward a little bit in this passage, you get to verse 40, you'll see that some people are saying he's a prophet. He's a good teacher. So he's a good man and he's, he's a teacher, but he's not God. And to say this is to say an impossibility. And why do I say it's an impossibility? It's because Jesus taught and made claims that he is God. He's God. And so for us to say, well, he's not God, is to call him a liar. And for us to say, well, he's just a good man, but he's not Lord, then, then why would you want to listen to a liar? I don't know how many people that I've looked at in my life and be like, man, I know they're a liar. They just lied to my face, but man, they're such a good person. Man, they're so good. No, you look at people that lie to your face and you're like, mm, no, I don't like that. And yet in this moment, some people are going to say, well, he's a good man, but he's just not God. And what you're saying in that moment is that Jesus is a liar. And if he's a liar, he can't be a good man. He can't be. Well, Ryan, where did Jesus claim that he was God? We've looked at several passages in John already. We'll see several more. But in John chapter five, Jesus is calling God his own father. This is John chapter five, verse 18. And it says, making himself equal with God. We talked about that that Sunday when we opened that passage in John chapter five. We'll see in a couple weeks in John chapter eight, Jesus will make the statement before Abraham was. Now, Abraham had lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. He said, before Abraham was even born, I was there. I am. He's claiming that he's God in that moment. And some people will argue and say, well, the gospel of John is the latest written gospel. And so because it's the latest written, we added all these things about Jesus being God in there. But let me go with what most people think is the earliest written gospel, the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter two, Jesus looks at a man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And people get all mad and upset and they say he's blaspheming for who alone can forgive sins but God. Jesus is like, that's the point. There is only one that can forgive sins and it's God and I'm he so I can forgive this man's sins. In the gospel of Mark over and over again, Jesus is showing his power and his might that he is God. He speaks to the wind. He speaks to the waves. He speaks to the spiritual demons at that time. He speaks to all of them and they listen and obey because he's God. None of us can go outside and speak to the clouds or speak to the wind and they respond. But to Jesus, they did because he's God. See, some of us in our Our culture will say, well, he's a good man, but there's a massive difference. There's a massive rift between being a good man and Jesus being God. You see, a good man will say, you know, there is a way to God. And let me tell you what that way is. A good man will say that. But Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't say that. He says, I am the way to God. I'm the way. A good man will say there is a God, but Jesus said, I am God. 
A good person will say, this is how you can reach God. And Jesus says, I've already done everything. All that you need to do to get to heaven is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me. Jesus said all these things because this is who Jesus is. He is both good and he is both God. There's no separation between the two. You can't just say he's good. You can't. You can't take that away, his divinity. He is both good and God. We can't separate these two things and say he's only good. A way for us to kind of understand that in a, in a personal sense is imagine three years ago when you as a church were praying and looking for your next lead pastor. And you came here and I, and I preached and you guys voted to, to call me as your next lead pastor of the church. And imagine if I got a phone call after you guys voted that Sunday morning and you said, I got good news for you, Ryan. We voted and we voted and decided that Ryan can come to be our next pastor of our church. But we also have bad news. We also have determined that Epley is out. We only want Ryan. We don't want the Epley, only Ryan. You can't do that. You can't separate me. I am Ryan Epley, right? They're one and the same. And yet that's what we try to do with Jesus. It's ludicrous. We try to say things like, Jesus, teacher, come in. King, you stay out. Jesus, come in helper and comforter. But Jesus, God, you stay out. You stay over there. Jesus, Christ, come in and, and save me from my sins. But Jesus, Lord, I don't want to obey you and follow you. But you can't choose. You can't separate Jesus and say, I'm going to take Jesus as the good man, but not Jesus as God because I want to kind of do my own things. You can't. There's no in-between. You get all of him or you get none of him. It's the reality. And so he's more than just good. He is God. And when he is God, that means we bow our knee to him as Lord. And we listen to him. We don't come to the Bible and say, well, maybe I'll take this and maybe I won't. No, we're like, I might not always understand this. And this is a hard saying. We just read that last week, right? Like a hard saying of what Jesus said. But we don't get to pick and choose different pieces of Jesus. We get all of him or we get none of him. And when we look at what Christ said in his life is, I'm not just a good man. I am good, but it's because I'm God. I'm God. And so may we not have the belief that Jesus is just a good man. Instead, may we look at what he said and believe that he is God. And when we do that, it will shape how we live and be obedient to him. So some people believe that Jesus was useful, but not Lord. I'm gonna use him how, for my own benefit. Some people say, well, he's better than that. He's not just useful, he's a good man. So I'll respect him as a good man, but I won't bow the knee to him as God. And there's a third group third group of people we find in this passage where they look at Jesus and they believe he is a deceiver instead of the deliverer. He's a deceiver instead of the deliverer. In verse 12, at the end of it, it says, some people are saying, no, he's leading the people astray. He's leading the people astray. Now, what's fascinating is when all this murmuring and talk is happening, Jesus comes in and he's like, okay, I'm gonna try to clear up some confusion. He starts to teach in this area in this city. And the people stand there and they marvel in verse 15 saying, how is it this man has learning when he's never studied? Like he's never gone through all the schools that we've gone through and yet when he teaches, there's something different about him. There's something incredible about the words that he has. He speaks as one who has authority, not just education. 
And I, and I love what Jesus says in verse 16. Once again, there's a lot of humor in the life of Christ. And because we think that holiness and humor can't go together, we miss it. Um, but there's a lot of humor in the life of Christ. And so they're like, how in the world is he speaking as one who's studied? And Jesus answered them, it's because my teaching is not mine. I'm like, well, where, where did your teaching come from? It's like, it's from God the Father. And if you're going to rip sermons from somewhere, that's a great place to steal them from. And he's like, God the Father has shared everything that I need to share with you. And so all of my lectures, all of my sermons, everything came from God the Father. And that's what Jesus says in this moment. And still, after he speaks, some people respond to him and say, man, this guy has a demon. This guy is crazy. He's not the Christ. He's crazy. And that's what they're arguing. He's just trying to deceive people. He's talking about sin and how he's going to deliver them. No, 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 no. He's just trying to deceive people. And so what Jesus does is he highlights some of the sin that's going on at that time. Some of the sin that he wants to rescue them from and redeem them from and ultimately redeem us from. You see, Jesus starts to, to unpack some things and he's like, hey guys, you're mad at me for, for one miracle that I did. And if you go trace this timeline wise, this was a miracle that Jesus had done a year and a half ago. A year and a half of bubbling anger in these people's hearts. I mean, that's a long time to be holding on to some resentment. And they're holding on to this resentment so much because, because of what? Because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. They're like, you can't do that. You can't heal somebody. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. You're supposed to do nothing but rest on the Sabbath. And then Jesus shows the sin in their own heart. He's like, guys, you do work on the Sabbath. He starts talking about this circumcision thing and he's like, hey, Moses said that we should do this on the eighth day and after the eighth day of the child being born and you guys still do that even if it's on the Sabbath. So if you're gonna say that I healed this man's whole body and yet you're gonna do that act, where is the sin in here? Where's the sin? And if you don't think that's sin, then Jesus is like, hey, guess what? You've been trying to kill me and you're breaking the law by doing that. That's what verse 19 says. You have the law, yet you don't keep the law. You seek to kill me. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And he's like, you're worried about me breaking the law, and here you are, like, thinking over the last year and a half how you're going to kill me. And ultimately, they succeed in that while he gets nailed to the cross. And Jesus comes in this moment, and he's like, you guys are saying I'm a deceiver. I'm the deliverer come to rescue you from your sins in this moment. So Jesus is pointing out their sins not to condemn them, but in order that they would be saved and to repent of these things. You see, the struggle in our heart, though, is that Jesus comes on the scene and he calls things in our life evil and wicked. And that does not feel good. We don't like that. He even says it to his brothers. If you look back in verse 7 of this text, he said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. He looks at them and he's like, you don't believe in me? You're no different than the world. That's why the world doesn't hate you. You look just like the world. But me, I'm not like the world. And when I tell the world that this is an area that's broken in your life, some of them don't want to change. They have zero desire to turn away from those things. They actually love those things more than the light. And Jesus is calling them in this moment to look to him. And many are like, no, I don't want to be delivered. I love my sin and I treasure it so much. 
But instead of finding life, what they find is darkness and despair and death. Modern day atheist philosopher, Thomas Nagel, he wrote a book called The Last Word. And in here, he wrote this, which I find fascinating because it's showing some of this that's happening in this text where he looks at Jesus and he doesn't want to believe Jesus as the deliverer. And so this is what Thomas Nagel said. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I'm uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people are religious believers. But it isn't just that I don't want to believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Rather, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe like that. This is what this man's saying. It's not about reason and about logic. It's I don't want that. Why? Because I don't want to bow my knee to that God. I don't want to have any kind of person speaking into my life besides myself I want to sit on that throne I want to be that God that's what he's saying and that's what people are saying in this text we would rather kill Jesus than bow the knee to him and if we're honest that's how a lot of us live in our heart we'd rather ignore Jesus or kill Jesus or think that he's not real because I don't want to bow my knee to him I'd rather see him as useful for my life and bring a couple of good things in my life or I'd love to see him as good, but I don't wanna see him as Lord and God because I don't wanna bow my knee to him. I don't wanna do it. I mean, it's just being real. That's where our hearts are a lot of times. And this is where Nagel's heart is as well. And yet what Jesus is calling us to is to a heart that would look to him as Lord and Savior, a deliverer who doesn't, take all the fun away from us, but gives us what our whole heart longs for, what we're designed for, what we're searching for. Our hearts will always remain restless until we find our rest in him. So Jesus is looking, wanting to deliver, and some are saying, no, he's a deceiver. But there's a fourth group of people here. This is a hopeful group. This fourth group of people are people that believe that Jesus is the son of God. Many people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you haven't seen this rhythm as we've been going through the Gospel of John in these first seven chapters, I hope you can see it in the chapters to come. Because what John does over and over and over again is he'll show Jesus do a great teaching or a great miracle or people responding to Jesus. And you'll always see all these people disbelieving in Jesus. And he'll always end with somebody believing in Jesus. Why? Why is John shaping his gospel like that? Because that's the whole point of his gospel. That we would read this and struggle in our own hearts. Here's our doubts. Here's our sin. This is us. But there's hope that we can believe. There's hope in Jesus Christ. And so that's what John's doing again. This whole moment in history, he's saying, look at the brothers. Look at these people arguing about who Jesus is. Now look at these people who lean in and believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And in verse 26, the people after hearing him teach, they ask the question, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That this is Jesus the Savior? Verses 27 and 28, we'll actually unpack more next week, so we're not gonna unpack it now. But then they come down again and they make another statement in verse 31. Yet many people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, don't get confused at the last part of verse 31. Like, what is that question? What are they asking? 
in the Greek, there's ways that you could put a word in the sentence that would let you know the response is a positive or a negative. And if it was a negative response, it would be called a may statement. And this is a may statement at the end of verse 31. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? No way. No. Because Jesus is the Christ. They're believing he is the Christ. And they've looked around and they're like, there's no way that anybody's going to do anything greater than what Jesus has done. You can look around to every country, every person, travel to every mountain and every valley, and you will not find someone like Christ. And they look at this woman like, we believe in him. We trust in him in this moment. This is what they're trusting in, that he is better than everything else. And they believe that he is the Christ. And in believing, they find life in him. So this is what John is leading us to, that we would look at these group of people. And one of the most encouraging things for me about this group of people is we know very little about them. It says, yet many of the people believed, but we don't know their names. We don't know what cities they're from. We don't know what they went to do in life. They're not the religious leaders or the political leaders that have been causing you so much strife in this moment. These are just common, average, everyday people who look at what Christ has said and what he has done. And they say, we believe in that. And even in their average, common nature, they start to speak out against those who are in authority at that time. People are saying, no, Jesus is just good, or no, he's a deceiver. They're like, man, we think this guy's the Christ. They speak up about who Jesus is. What caused them to do that? What caused them to take that step of faith? Where they used to just say things behind closed doors, now they're speaking openly to the leaders? It's their belief. It's their right belief in who Jesus is. And when you start looking and saying, he is the creator. And he informed me. That he made me and so he must have a plan for me. If he knitted me together with purpose and intention, then I'm going to live my life for him. If he is the Christ and he's delivering us from our sins and he's giving us hope, then we have to tell other people that there is no better man, the God-man Jesus, that you will ever find. There is no one else that can be the Messiah to save us from our sins and from the despair of our heart. There's no one who's going to cure the loneliness that we feel outside of Jesus. There's no one. So their right belief led to their right action to share. So what do you believe about Jesus? What is that belief leading you to do? Right belief leads to right action. And a right belief in Jesus will lead to eternal life, hope, peace. But a wrong or a broken view about Jesus will lead to doubt and despair and death. So what do you believe about Jesus? Bow your heads with me. Today, if you're here and you know, you've looked at Jesus as useful, uh, security guard for your kingdom in your way, but not looking to him as Lord. Or maybe you've looked at Jesus as a good man who's got some good teachings, but you haven't looked to him as the God of all creation. 
then today would you confess your disbelief in the past and now your belief in him as Lord. And just like Jesus' brothers, he will change you and save you and redeem you. You will look to him and say, I want to be one who serves you for you are my God and you are my king. And if that's you, would you pray to him today and know that he came to seek and to save you and me, any who would believe he would save. So cry out to him now. And for others of us who know Jesus and have walked with Jesus, but you still fall, fall into those categories at times. You don't live in those categories, but there's times of sin and selfishness in your heart that you've fallen into those different categories to, to look to Jesus as useful or to try to excuse him as good so you don't have to follow all of his commands. Would you do the same? Look to him again as your deliverer, the one who died for your sins in order to rescue and to save you and the one who will bring you back again. Look to him and pray, confessing your sins and know that when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins. Share that now, share that with him. But know as you pray, you confess Jesus is King. What is personal is not meant to be kept private. Would you share the good news of the gospel with others, just like the people in John 7 did? Would you tell others that there is no better place to find peace and joy and rest outside of Christ? There's no other deliverer. No job can deliver. No relationship can deliver. No, no, no promotion, no finances can deliver. Only Jesus can deliver. And praise him for that. Take just a moment now and to pray to him, pouring out your heart. Pray now. God, thank you. Thank you in your grace and your mercy that you hear our prayers. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in our place to be the mediator so that we could come to you and find our forgiveness and our hope. God, I pray that this week, this right belief in you would lead us to right action, that it would shape our lives, how we live in our marriage, how we live in our families, how we work, God, how we love and we care for others, how we speak words of truth, truth and love. God, we pray that we would do that for you because you are worthy of it all. We love you for who you are, King Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand down. Let's sing.